Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Sister Dr. Marisha Weber, a psychiatrist and religious sister of mercy from St. Louis with a special interest in addictions to digital media and their treatments. You know, Tom, I don't, I, I'm sure this topic couldn't be more timely than it is right now. And then as I say that, I think I could have said that anytime over the last two decades, and it still, <laughs> would, have, it still would have been just as true. I mean, digital media has, in many ways, taken over our lives, our children's lives, uh, our company's lives in cases. You know, whether it's Adolescents being exposed to pornography or young men, especially being stuck in their parents' basements, addicted to video games, or if it's just men and women not enjoying each other's company in an authentic way when the opportunity presents itself, uh, digital media and its ubiquitous presence, it's changed our culture forever and not always for the better. No, and and she's going to help us know that, you know, it's a little bit like food. Food is good, but too much food is bad. And so there is a good amount of digital media, and she's going to help us parse through that. But one of my favorite authors came to mind. I got a book for Christmas by Dr. Peter Peter Kraft. It's called Ask Peter Kraft, and there's like 100 questions in there. And somebody asked him, what technological invention do you think was most dangerous of all time? And he, he, being a philosopher, he couldn't give one answer. Of course. He had to keep saying on the other hand. Um, so, yeah. you know, as I hear that question, I, in my practice, I have the, the privilege of being around a lot of Amish families. Ah. And, and some of our listeners may not even be familiar with the Amish, um, but our East Coast listeners probably will be. But I said to a, a, an Amish gentleman once, what's the biggest threat to your way of life? And spoiler alert, he held up a cell phone. Uh, actually, as I say that, he pointed to mine and he said, that thing right there next to you uh, is the greatest risk of their way of life. What does the esteemed Dr. Kraft have to say about these risks? Well, Peter Kraft gave four answers. The first was nuclear bomb, since we could well, wipe out our civilization. That's the second one. one was relevant to you know your specialty, the pill, because he mm. said it changed pregnancy to a disease and children into accidents. The third thing was the clock because it took human-based time and made time artificial. But the final answer he gave was the smartphone. He says he thinks nearly everyone under 30 is more addicted to the smartphone than sex, alcohol, or drugs. And he even goes so far to say that the logo that many of them have is an apple with a bite out of it, like from the Garden of Eden. And, uh, (laughs) He plays up on that a lot. And he says what the smartphone has done to him, he says it's taken love and replaced it with power, happiness replaced by success, wisdom replaced by knowledge, freedom replaced by addiction. And he he talks about this extra credit uh, assignment he gives to all his students. And he says over 80% of them cannot do it. And it's to write an essay on how my world and my life were different during the 24 hours during which I looked at no screen, smartphone, computer, tablet, Kindle, TV, et cetera. In other words, eight out of 10 students, free extra credit. They couldn't do it. What, what, do you, what does that mean? It means we're in trouble. I think sister will tell us that. You know, I'm often on call. And so that means when I'm going to mass, I take that screen with me. Uh, And of course, I put it on vibrate, but I take it with me. And then occasionally when I go to mass, I'm not on call. And when I'll leave it in my car and I feel like I'm being so radical that I'm really doing, (laughs) I'm really doing something transformative just by leaving my simple phone in the car. And the fact that it affects me that way, I think is pretty telling uh, that I spend way too much time attached to that thing. And it is transformative. I leave mine in in, uh, my vehicle when I go into church. Um, But Sister gave us some little tidbits of data. The average adult unlocks their phone 160 times a day, and half of them check it in the middle of the night. 
<laughs> and guess what? 18 to 24 year olds do it twice as much. Here's a good one for you and I both, since uh, given the age of our kids, 36% of millennials say they spend two or more hours a day looking at their phones, phones for personal activity. That's and, remarkable. And then the next one, I can't fathom. The average user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Really? <laughs> uh, it is a little bit frightening to think that we could, we could have such an intimate relationship with a piece of equipment. Well, let me go to our medical trivia question of the day before we bring on our expert. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, the topic is going to be uh, smartphone and intelligence. A 2017 study at the University of Texas Hook'em Horns in Austin examined how the presence of a smartphone within reach, even if it's off, affects your ability to use your brain. That's a thing there behind your forehead. Nearly 800 people were asked to complete a task that required learning and processing with their smartphones on, but silenced in one of three locations. On the desk near them, in their pocket or a backpack near them, or in another room. So my question is, what differences, if any, were found between the groups? In other groups, what was the difference in performance scores based on where the smartphone was located during the test? Which group did best? Which did worst? Smartphone off, in front of you on your desk, in your pocket, or in another room, and which was the worst? You'll have to wait till the end of the show for the answer. We'll be back with more Dr. Doctor in just a moment. Welcome back for our interview today with Sister Marisha Weber, who is also a physician, a DO. She's a religious sister of Mercy, based out of Alma, Michigan, but lives in St. Louis. She's a psychiatrist who trained uh, at Notre Dame, at Mayo Clinic, among other places. She now is the director of the Office of Consecrated Life for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. And she gives a variety of workshops, uh, including one on social media and its effects on the brain for both uh, religious and laity. She's in a bunch of talks and publications. In this interview, we would first like to lay the groundwork of how we're going to do this. We're going to first understand how addictions occur based on two systems in our brain, the liking and the wanting system. A liking system is also called the reward system. And then there's a wanting system, which can turn into a craving system. Then sister is going to talk about how this applies to the use of screens in our lives. Then we'll move into another area of neuroscience with what is called the habit loop, not the habit sister is wearing now, but a different habit, how we develop habits. And sister will help us learn how to develop good habits, which we know as virtues as Catholics to protect us against the harms of screen addiction. Finally, she'll give us advice on a way to determine what a healthy use of smartphones and screens looks like. Sister, welcome to Dr. Doctor. <laughs> We're so happy to have you with us. I just have to say, Sister Marisha, our listeners might be scratching their heads. They hear us say Dr. Doctor a lot, and they, they, they might hear us say sister, but not very often. But I'm relatively certain most of our listeners have never heard us say Sister Doctor. Um, and, and so I think we should probably pause for a second and have you just describe your, your pretty interesting, uh, professional background. Yes. Well, I actually entered the community already as a physician and wanted so much then to blend my faith and then discovered through meeting the Sisters of Mercy of Alma, Michigan, that I could do both. And so I entered the community, started out in family practice, and then my mother general asked me to go on in psychiatry. And so now I am a physician and a sister, along with 15 others of our sisters who are also physicians in the community. And it's part of our charism. We're Sisters of Mercy. And so our education is our almsgiving back to the church to really uphold the dignity of the human person where the mercy of God converges with the misery of mankind. And so it's a privilege for me to participate in this way in my vocation and also as a healthcare provider. Well, sister, it's a privilege for us to have you have you on Dr. Doctor. We're so glad that you, you could join us. Indeed. So sister, tell us about these liking and wanting systems in our brain. Our brain has a reward center with two main pathways. One is called the liking pathway 
and the other is the wanting pathway. Now, the liking really has to do with pleasure. It's when I enjoy a good meal or the company of a good friend. And the wanting pathway has me desire more of it. It makes me want more of it. It motivates me to seek that which brought me pleasure. So there's a balance between the two that allows me to then eat properly, sufficient drink, so that I can really sustain myself in a healthy way. And so what are the... Oh, Tom and I want to know the same thing. We always do. Uh, what's the pleasure chemical or the or the opioid uh, that you've referred to? The 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 liking um, pathway has primarily opioid-like neurotransmitters, and one that you're very very familiar with would be an endorphin. So it kind of makes you feel good. You know, it's it's the pain natural painkiller. It's the one that gives you pleasure. So it's endorphin that's most often in the liking system. And how about the wanting system? The wanting has dopamine. And dopamine doesn't have to do with pleasure. Dopamine, remember, has to do with desire, with motivation. So it allows you then to be motivated to get what it is that brought you pleasure, which is that endorphin in your system or the opioids in your system. So what's an example from daily life that shows the interplay between the endorphin and the dopamine? Well, if you have um, the company of a good friend, then you're enjoying that company. And that's the liking system. And then it makes you then want to spend more time with that person. And that's the wanting system. Or if you're really, really thirsty, then that's the desire or the wanting system. And once you have something to drink, it just makes you, ah, I just feel so much better. Because we used to think dopamine was for pleasure, but recently we found out it's not, is it? That's right. We learned now that there actually is a distinction, that dopamine does not incite pleasure at all. It has to do with desire and motivation. And it's the liking or the opioid system, the, pain's the brain's natural pain reducer or pleasure system that only has pleasure. So as our listeners are, are listening, uh, because that's what they do, how does this <laughs> imbalance, uh, how does an imbalance between liking and wanting lead to, to problems in, in everyday life? Good point. It's when we have too much of something that um, then basically when I want um, more food that's helpful, then once I've had enough food, then Krebs come out. C-R-E-B is another chemical in the liking system that puts on the brakes to the pleasure I'm experiencing mm -hmm. and saying, I'm satiated. I've had enough, so we don't overeat and allows us to move to our regular daily activities. So that happens in a balance. However, we know now that with addictions, where you rev up more alcohol, for example, or more cocaine, there becomes a limit to the pleasure. And so the Krebs puts on the brakes, but then what happens is then the dopamine, the wanting increases, the wanting increases, and then you almost get a disconnect between the pleasure which says, no, I've had enough, but then the wanting. And so it's kind of an unusual system where the, the brain then is kind of a neutral system. It, it, it doesn't distinguish between stimuli. Um, so you can have a bad habit and it, the brain then likes something less, but wants it more. So you get kind of an imbalance or a, a disorder or a learning error that occurs in these pathways. And what does this have to do with tolerance, sister? Good question. Now, tolerance is when I need more of a substance to have the same effect. So, for example, if I have one glass of wine after maybe two weeks, I won't feel tipsy anymore, and I might need two glasses of wine to have the same effect. So I become <laughs> tolerant to the same amount. So I want more in order to have the same effect. Now, if I become tolerant, that means it's a sign that I'm on my way to possibly getting an addiction, especially with drugs or certain behaviors. Now, there's also the tolerance occurs because brakes have been put on the liking system. You can't like things as much as you used to. But then what happens with the wanting system, something that can go awry has to do with cues for different behaviors. How are they related, those cues? Yes, we 
the the wanting system has a lot of cues. So, for example, if you are addicted to cigarettes, just seeing a package of cigarettes, or if you would go to a bar and smoke, then seeing those, having those cues or triggers makes you then want to light up. It makes you think of wanting to light up. Um, and if you're, let's say, addicted to online gaming, once you tap the keys on a, on a computer, you associate tapping the keys and then something being brought up as playing your favorite game. And so then you did, you know, click onto that and then go, go at it that way. So um, those cues really trigger a certain routine that you engage in, in order then ideally to seek a reward. But when it's an addiction, it's not necessarily a reward. Sometimes it's something that's detrimental to your well-being. So sister, anyone that's ever tried to give up anything knows about cravings. Um, and cravings certainly are a key characteristic of any kind of addictive um, addictive phenomenon. And that can be chemical or I guess they could be behavioral. What happens in this system that leads to these cravings that drive someone out after the thing which they know they, they shouldn't pursue? Yeah, yeah. You know, this would happen online gaming. We also see it, especially with things like internet pornography, where the pleasure system is saying, whoa, whoa, this is just enough. You know, I really don't want to engage here anymore. So the breaks of the crab, but then the desire increases, increases, increases. And in addition, there's a chemical called delta Fos B that gets secreted with the dopamine that strengthens the pathway, that puts another rush through it and fuels your wanting and desire but, you know, it's not being met. And so then you have more of an urge, more of a desire, and a craving evolves and a real uncomfortability evolves in that pattern when you've got an addiction. And this happens with drugs, and it also happens with certain behaviors. Hmm. So basically, there's a natural limit to how much we can like, but there doesn't seem to be a natural limit as to how much we can want. Isn't that interesting? Yes, yes. The urge to want far exceeds the ability to like or enjoy. And I think that taps on the pain pleasure principle. You know, too much pleasure is painful. And we ah. then get this mixed up in a balance. You know, I can have one hot fudge sundae, but if I have three hot fudge sundaes, that which was initially very pleasant and desirable becomes irksome and painful. So sister, do you sense in your work with patients that that they sense they're traveling down this unhealthy path or do you is it more common to already find themselves there and not realizing they were on their way there? Often they're not aware of it. That's that's the thing. It's it's it almost blocks their thinking capacity. So I have persons really stop and think, you know, what are the routines that you engage in, are they actually bringing you the pleasure that you're seeking or the reward that you're seeking? You know, and AA does this very well. So for example, if the cue is that you're bored or stressed or um, angry or upset, and you're going to grab a bottle, you know, and then that's your routine, is that really the reward you want? Do you want to be intoxicated? So if you don't want to be intoxicated, then instead, your routine would need to be, okay, what fits my need? Then maybe going to an AA meeting and talking to a sponsor and realizing you're not alone. So the cue remains the same. I'm frustrated. I'm lonely. I'm stressed out. And maybe the reward doesn't take away the life stressors, but my routine is different. And what I've engaged in is much healthier. You know, the same thing is so true you than how up, we use. What you're bringing up, sister, is really this examination of conscience uh, so I think this is a perfect segue, which spells blasted. Sounds like a, a, a British epithet. But what is, how does blasted fit into being an examination of conscience for addictions? Yes, it, it, it taps into the um, habit loop. So um, there's a cue that triggers a behavior that then leads to an action and if we're seeking an, a reward, then that's the action we're often seeking. So, for example, BLASTED stands for bored, lonely, anxious, apathetic, angry, stressed out, or tired. So if I have a huge exam coming up and I've got to write a paper then um, and my stressor is cute, 
you know, then I go to my cell phone and I pull out, let's say, um, Fortnite and I stop playing Fortnite, then, you know, this, that's how I deal with stress. But it doesn't help me get this paper done. It's now in the wee hours of the night. So what I need to pull back and examine, what would be a healthier way for me to deal with my stress? And maybe I need to get the Fortnite app off my phone. Maybe I need to, if I'm stressed out, go for a jog in the evening. Uh, maybe I need to go to the library and begin to work on my paper. And that will bring me in a far better place than my er earlier routine of just playing Fortnite all night long because I'm stressed out about this paper I've got to write. So, sister, how do smartphones fit into this addiction? And is what's going on in the brain any different than with a chemical addiction? It is not different. That's the thing that so surprised us. We did not expect that something that goes into our most sensitive sense, our eyes and our ears, that we don't even take in outwardly as a chemical, could have such a profound effect on our brain and how the reward system works. It literally can trigger some genetic changes in the brain towards some of these dysfunctional um, um, addictions. So that's now we have a whole field called behavioral addictions, which didn't exist some 30 years ago before the internet became available. So the mm. internet is key because before when I read a book, how many people were addicted to a book? <laughs> when I listened to the radio, how many people became addicted to a radio? When I had a phone, how many people were addicted to a phone before the internet? So it's the medium that really has triggered the addictive quality that has really begun to alter literally the genetic pathways of our reward center. Now, it seems timely, sister, to ask about social media. Um, we're hearing so much about it now, um, mostly bad, but do the social media applications, do they in some way uh, sort of capitalize on this addictive potential? Oh, very, very much so. In fact, they have web designs that are really working on this because they know, like 40 years ago, they did an experiment with pigeons, um, a Michael Zeeler, and he realized that if he dropped food pellets at unpredictable times, then <laughs> the pigeons secreted more dopamine. Well... You know, Mark Zuckerberg wanted persons to use his Facebook far more often. Remember, it was just a static directory, an electronic directory. So when they then experimented on the like button in 2007, they had 200 million users. Then we were like those pigeons gambling <laughs> when we might get a like or a post. And so then we would go after it. And so it exploded the number of persons who began to use Facebook and then we have, you know, Tumblr and, and Twitter and, and YouTube and all these other apps that have now engaged in this and have many more buttons that have triggered our desire to, um, to seek out just gambling. So, yes, very, very much so. We have now gotten a whole recipe to trigger the dopamine in a way that was never possible before. And that's called un positive, unpredictable reinforcement or variable reinforcements, where you vary when you get something that you might want, um, a positive response, or somebody posting, or somebody saying yes, or they like what I've done. Um, so, you know, it taps into our desire for attention, but in a way that's really, you know, upset our, our brain pathways. So for instance, sister, on my phone, I silence most of the time all notifications like email and texting because I noticed those pings are unpredictable and they would just rile me up. It's like, oh, I got to go check this. And it was taking me away from everything. So if you're leaving those pings on all the time, how can you live a healthy mental life? Well, you, you really, you continually hyper arouse your brain. In fact, we now have the more common cause of attention deficit disorder from the hyper arousal of the brains. We now know that the brain does not fully develop until age 25. So if you're giving these phones to young children when their brain is developing and they're hyper aroused, you get short bursts, 20 seconds of visual and auditory material, and that's the pathways that get strengthened. What wires more frequently is the one that fires more frequently and gets stronger. And so then it's hard to really settle down. And that's a real problem today where we can't quiet down. We can't allow ourselves to pause 
ponder, to pray, to really listen, you know, most often as, you know, to God and to one another. We really need that time of quiet for a healthy brain, for a healthy functioning. So, sister... it's it's terrible as I hear you say that, sister. I think no wonder I can't hear anything when I'm in adoration. I'm expecting a ping, and if I don't if I don't get the ping, I think the adoration chapel's broken. Um, but we do hear those. Tom makes me feel so much better about myself because I go nuts in my house when everyone's phones are pinging because I I have this you know I have this Pavlovian desire to answer the ping. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. So how can we use the habit loop for good, sister, to get out of to, our potential addictions? We, we need to look at our habits. Now, what is it that's going to really calm us? You know, we, we need silence. Silence, we know scientifically now, is very important. In fact, silence helps us quiet the brain down and helps begin to cause the generation of the nerves in the brain to help a rebalance between the liking system and the wanting system. Mm. It also helps us relieve stress. If we're quiet enough, it allows leaves some of those feelings and those thoughts and those memories that kind of stirred to really begin to be integrated so that we can think about them and what we want to do about them. Is it something we need to address? Is it something we need to give to God or pray about? Even when we're sleeping, our mind goes a mile a minute. So we know that that's a very important part for brain health. So that's what's really missing. And we cannot listen to what God is saying to us. We cannot engage in prayer, which is an ultimate dialogue. If we are not quiet, if we're not hearing what another is saying, and I think that's what we're so missing, is just human connection, to know and be known and to love and be loved. And a cell phone taking most of my time and interrupting my face-to-face interactions doesn't make me feel loved, doesn't make me feel really connected like I belong. And I think that's such a crisis that we're experiencing today as a culture. Well, sister. Amen, sister, couldn't say couldn't say that better. Thank you. you. You know, I think about in my own medical practice, and I'll bet Tom, it's this way in your building. When our employees get together for lunch, they all have their devices out. Yes, um, and they like to label me a boomer for coming down and saying, "Put your devices away. Talk to each other." But <laughs> that's exactly what we're missing, isn't it? Actual oh. human interaction. Yes. I think that's the crisis of what so many are experiencing today. There's an increase in anxiety, in part because of the hyperarousal and the comparing of what's on social media. And then also that dulls the brain. It's such a weight on the liking system, which is the pleasure, but then it creates almost a depression or a dullness. And then you want to just not, you don't feel good about yourself. So there's just such a need to really connect with another, to let them know that, you know, you care about them. I mean, how often are we in a conversation where somebody gets a ping and a ring and they pull out their phone and interrupt our face-to-face, <laughs> giving me the sense that I'm less important to them and this thing is more important. So it really does affect so our human sister, interactions. What's the difference between internal silence and external silence and how much would you prescribe for listeners? Uh, external silence has to do with no outward noise. So there's no music, there's no voices, there's no electronics going on. And internal silence is really that quiet within our soul. And it allows us to commune with our maker. And until we have that open space that we can allow ourselves to hear him and to be heard we're not going to know ourselves loved and we're not going to know ourselves known with but how do listeners regard. cultivate internal silence if their thoughts are going a mile a minute they need to um do things like um read an actual book which is much slower than what they would read on the internet they need to engage engage in face-to-face conversations 
and turn take, where they stay on topic. Um, so they come to know one another. They need to get sufficient rest. They need to get physical exercise. Really what they need to do is to return to a lifestyle that was much more akin to what we were doing before the internet became available. It's the duty of the moment, the grace of the moment, the here and now of what is really surrounding us that then allows us to be most richly who we are created uh, for relationship. So sister, how much media it's too much. How can somebody know if they're spending too much time with media? And are there recommended amounts by age for different kids and for adults? There, you know, the interesting thing is COVID has allowed us to really begin to look at this. And it's not just the amount of time, but it's the quality and the content of the material that's being looked at. But they also have done things with regards to age. So someone under two years old, no electronics at all. Only maybe FaceTime, for example, where there's another adult talking to the child and say, oh, look here, this grandma or whatever it is, because a child is really too little to understand what's going on. And then when between 18 months of age and five years of age, then it's, they limit it only to one hour with some educational content so that it's truly educational and that they can engage. But what they say at that age, that even so an adult can be part of them and say, oh, it's like going through the park. Oh, see the duck over here and see the flower over here. Isn't this beautiful? So that they're just a couple of years old, but you're teaching them to attend and also relate to you through this device and not just get lost in the device. And as you get older, they don't give you necessarily time. But again, it's the quality and the content that's important, that is determined. And then they've also said with, with parents, you know, don't use the phone when you're at mealtime. Don't use the phone when you're engaging in some playtime or caretaking time with a child because otherwise you're not plugging into them and they're not plugging into you. And that's just so important to do. So it's something Practical really question. Is it better at mealtime if the phones are out of sight or is it just as good as they're face down on the table? Oh, no, no. If they're face down on the table, it's going to take you energy to wonder if you're going to miss something. Clearly, the studies have shown that, that our willpower then is just wasted away by wondering what's there. It's much better to leave your phone at home or leave your phone, you know, in the car if um, if uh, you're trying to really have a kind of conversation or, or a visit. But no, no phones at the table, no phones in the bedroom, um, no phones in chapel. Um, certainly not when you're driving, they shouldn't be on. <laughs> okay, now I feel like I need to treat my depression for... Uh... <laughs> but it's true, that, that explains, you know, in my opening comments to Tom, that this is why I feel like such a spiritual victor when I manage to go into mass without my phone, because it's so uncommon. But yet it is it is liberating and freeing. It allows your brain to sort of relax and not think about the vibration. Sister, you mentioned in your writings a media fast. What is a media fast? How does one do it? A media fast basically is giving you a break or a pause from media itself where you're not going to use any at all. And sometimes I recommend to a family or an individual that they decrease the amount of media they use by an hour a day, for example. Um, or maybe find a whole day where they're not going to use media at all and, and then wonder, you know, what is it that they were able to do because they weren't on their phones? What was it like to not have the phone and wonder what it is that they were missing or responding to a ping? You know, oftentimes they're going to discover they have more free time. What is it that you had time to do that you wouldn't have had time had you been with your phone the whole time? And then kind of assess that, talk about that amongst yourselves, and then decide, you know, do you want to do this again for a day, maybe for a whole weekend? But it can be very helpful to calm, to allow, stir some of the creative juices, and um, ha have you, you know, experience yourself and your environment and your relationships in a whole other way. Please, Persons say that they're more creative and that they actually, you know, enjoy what they're doing um, more deeply because they don't spread out and break up their attention from being present to then going to the phone and, and the like. Well, sister, I know that our listeners 
have been moved by listening to you. Um, if if they want to know more, uh, can you direct us? And I hate to say to an online source, since we're talking about media <laughs> fast, but uh, where could our listeners get more and become more knowledgeable about this? Yeah, there are a lot of different websites that are available for for parents. I especially like um, um, Common Sense Media because they can give a lot of tips and a lot of recommendations for parents. There's also Healthy Children. Some TED Talks talk a little bit about some of this liking and wanting pathways. I also actually have a book called Screen Addiction, Why You Can't Put Your Phone Down. And on the publisher's webpage, there's also a little video that kind of describes some of the problems in the brain that occur, and there are some free downloadable discussion booklets that are age-appropriate for parents, children, and um, young adults. Well, sister, doctor, we can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise uh, expertise, and your passion about this really important topic. Thank you so much for joining us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much. And now after that wonderful delineation of addiction and the habit loop and the need for silence, we have an interview with Adam Holtz. Adam is the director of Plugged In at Focus on the Family based out of Colorado Springs. Adam, I'm so excited you're here because my family and I have relied on Plugged In for reviews for years, even last night when we chose a movie. I think you do a great service with it. Tell our listeners, we want them to know what is Plugged In and why did Focus on the Family start it? Thank you, Tom. I love hearing that. We love hearing how God uses what we do to help families. So, you know, sometimes when we sit in cubicles and launch things out into the uh, the interwebs, as the kids call it, uh, you don't know what's <laughs> happening out there. Uh, but I digress already, which isn't a good sign. Uh, Plugged In is a ministry of focus on the family, as you mentioned. We started in 1991 as a little newsletter called Parental Guidance. We were very focused on music at that point. Things grew. Uh, in 1995, we became plugged in. And uh, a couple years later, became a 16-page four-color magazine. We launched our website uh, in 1999. And even though movies weren't our primary focus of the written publication, they quickly became the primary focus of the website. And we saw that that was the main draw for people. So since 1999, we have sought to give parents, grandparents, youth workers, anybody who wants to know what's happening with popular culture, everything they need to know to make a wise decision for their family. And if you haven't been to our site, what we do is give you an overview of the story, but then with movies, we break things down into categories. So we do positive elements, spiritual elements, sexuality, drugs, sex, violence, profanity, and then sort of a, a closing conclusion in terms of how to think about that. And, and our, our desire is not so much to tell you what you should do, but to give you the information you need to make the best decision possible for your family, because different families are different and different families will respond to different kinds of content uh, according to their circumstances. Adam, has the widespread realization that there's an ad addiction to these kind of screens changed the way that you look at things at Plugged In? Well, I think it's the, the proliferation of smartphones has just magnified what we do. Because, you know, these days you can get any kind of content you can think of on your smartphone. So you can watch movies, you can listen to music, you can read a book. Uh, you know, it, the sky's the limit. If it's in content form and available out there, you can get it. And so we have broadened what we're doing. We recently began reviewing YouTube channels. Uh, we know from research that especially with tween boys, uh, it's the most popular destination. You know, when they're not playing the video game Fortnite, they're surfing YouTube. And, and it's not that YouTube is all bad, uh, but we wanted to give parents a heads up on, some of the bigger channels out there. And obviously there are a zillion YouTube channels. So we're trying to keep pace as much as we can with a small staff. We've got five people. We typically do about 15 written reviews a week and we have uh, radio features on, on the radio across the country uh, five days a week and we have a podcast. So again, we wanna keep our finger on 
the pulse of what's happening. And I didn't mention it above, but we, in addition to movies, we do music, TV, video games, books, YouTube channels, and we're increasingly delving in our blog into technology and technology trends and what parents need to know there. So, you know, it's a moving target and we're only getting a very small slice of that. We know that, but hopefully it's a big enough slice that we're giving parents, uh, you know, equipping them with something that they can use in their own families. So Adam, how do you and your team try to make a statement of healthy versus unhealthy when it comes to to screen use? I mean, in other words, how do you guys decide good versus bad when you're looking at something? Man, that is a terrific question. And there are a couple of different layers to it. I think at the most basic level, we would use Philippians 4.8 as a filter where Paul talks about, you know, whatever is good, whatever is right and pure and noble and true, think on these things. And so at the most basic level, we want to help people to move from being a passive consumer to really actively engaging with the ideas and the images that they're being exposed to. And you guys know we live in a culture that encourages us to be passive consumers, uh, you know, not to really think too deeply about it. And then on a deeper level, we're very interested in worldview formation because it's not just X movie has this bad scene in it, but what are the bigger messages that are being communicated and really trying to help people think about that as well. And then when you put those two things together, uh, you know, you're really talking about discipleship in terms of entertainment. How are those things affecting me personally? How are they affecting our kids? What is, what is the fruit of that? Uh, how are we engaging with that? And because our screens are so prevalent, they're never, they're never very far away. Uh, as adults, as parents, as ministers, we're constantly re-engaging with how are we doing? And, you know, I'm a parent of a 10, a 12 and a 14 year old. Things get out of whack. The last year has been terrible. We've all been cooped up in the house for a year. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say we have it all nailed down, but the goal is not perfection, but actively engaging in thinking critically about how you're interacting with that content, whether it's becoming compulsive, whether it's leading to addictive behavior. Uh, and a lot of us need a reset fairly, fairly regularly. Good for you. Adam, what are some of the most interesting things that you've learned through the years of doing all these reviews? Boy, that is such an interesting question. Um, I think that we get letters from people who are all over the spectrum. I mean, you would think that Focus on the Family would mostly have a constituency that is, you know, right-leaning politically and, and conservative, but we get people all over the map. And I love the fact that we have a broad reach. Years and years and years ago, we actually got a letter from Tom Morello, who is the guitar player for uh, Rage Against the Machine and Audio Audio Slave. Uh, he's a pretty outspoken <laughs> Tom and I knew that, of course. <laughs> right? Um, and he said he really appreciated our reviews. And that was a surprise. And then you get letters from people who say, you know, really foul things. You're on the internet, you know, not everybody likes what you have to say. So I'll spare you the gory details. But um, I figure if we're getting <laughs> positive feedback from the left and the right, and we're getting, you know, constructive or sometimes hateful criticism from the left and the right, we're probably where we need to be. And there's just such a vast spectrum out but, there. You know, we're, we talk, we're talking a lot about unity these days, but one would think that the health of our children from a from a media consumption standpoint is something that really all parents could could connect around. Yeah. And this idea that regardless of the content, screens can be evil and addicting. And Absolutely. That, and that all parents, because we're all interested in our children and their health, this should yep. be something that would bring us together. Hopefully. Yeah, I, I would think so. And I think, um, you know, my daughter up until fairly recently was in a singing group. And um, I had a father who of another child say that he had listened to one of our podcasts. And he said, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I really appreciated where you guys were coming from. And I want to keep listening. And, and that's what we want to hear. We certainly are coming from uh, an evangelical Christian perspective, theologically, 
um, and, and a little, hopefully little O orthodox perspective. But we want to be able to speak to the reality that, as you said, this affects everybody, Chris. Well, in the time, a couple of minutes that we have left, our listeners, I know they want to know more. What are the three big things that you want to get to them and have them know about electronic media uh, that they should know that maybe they don't? You know, I think that there is an idea that media affects other people, but it doesn't affect us. Um, I think we're, we are deep. <laughs> We are deeply invested in the idea that, yeah, kids are really being influenced by this. And, uh, but my kids know, or I'm not. Um, and I think there's a wealth of data out there that shows that uh, the entertainment choices we make affect our behavior, how we, you know, what we do. Uh, it affects our beliefs. That gets to the worldview part of things. What do I think is right and normal? What do I think is good? What's acceptable? You know, in 1997, Ellen came out on TV and her series was canceled shortly after that. And 30 years later, give or take, um, you can't find a show on television that doesn't have an LGBTQ character. The worldview and the culture has shifted. Um, and so our beliefs are influenced by the stories that are, are impacting us. And then finally, um, it influences our biology. There was a book out a couple of years ago by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And he quoted a Chinese study where they took a group of people who had never been exposed to the internet before, took an MRI of their brain, put them on the internet for four hours a day for two weeks and took another MRI. And the structure of their brain was different after two weeks. And so our entertainment and our screen interaction is affecting our behavior, our beliefs, and our biology. And I think sometimes we don't understand how profound, and all of those have a spiritual component too. Uh, there's profound influence there, and, and we would do well to, to take it really seriously. How do our listeners find your reviews, Adam? You can come to pluggedin.com. Uh, and you'll find reviews of everything that, that we've been talking about today. And we also have a weekly podcast called The Plugged In Show, where we, our team has a discussion much like this one. Um, and we just kick ideas around. So if you've liked what I had to say today, you can find more of the same at The Plugged In Show. And that's at thepluggedinshow.com. Adam, this has been delightful. Thank you. Well, I thank think you. Uh, this is a new audience uh, to find out about Plugged In and focus on the Great. family. And I think we have a lot in common. That is fantastic. I um, I love having the opportunity to, well, I'm an extrovert trapped in a cubicle and I've been in my corner in my basement for a year. So, <laughs> um, Thank you so. for joining us and, uh, and helping our listeners on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. You astute listeners know it's time for the answer to the medical trivial question. And it's it's a big one. It has to do with what's the what's the better way to treat uh, to treat your screen time or your screen device. So take it away, Tom. So remember, I wanted you to rank in order what had the most and least effect on doing mental tasks. Having a phone in front of you, off, having a phone in your pocket or backpack, off or having the phone in another room. And not surprisingly, it took a lot of energy to ignore the phone in front of you and the people with the phone on the desk, even if it was off, even if it was, if it was face down, didn't make a difference. They did far worse than those who left it in another room and intermediate was those whose phones uh, were in a backpack or in their pocket. So even if it's so off, it affects the way we think. Yeah, so Sister Marisha gave a little bit of a hint there when she was talking about even if it was in front of you that it affects the way that you think. So the practical point here is mealtime, don't have the phones visible anywhere. Or any kind of quality personal interaction or interaction that you want to be quality and personal. Uh, the first thing you ought to do is clear the space of electronic devices. And that's a nice segue into Chris's top three takeaways of this episode. Yeah, I loved this episode and the material that we covered, both as a consumer, uh, as a parent, and as of this past weekend, a grandparent even. Um, <laughs> but the three big takeaways for me um, in that addiction is bad. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is a health show. We talk about 
health from a Catholic perspective. And if you have screen addiction or addicted to games or the internet or other kinds of media, that's no less evil than being addicted uh, to a substance, legal or otherwise. And so addiction is bad. Uh, that's, that's one of the takeaways. I think another one has to be, and I love the way Sister Marisha said it, we need silence to be healthy. It affects our brain. And we need both, as she talked about, external silence, no noise, but we also need internal silence. Um, I love the way she she set that up. We're never going to hear the voice of God that so many of us desire if we don't turn the noise down. Uh, and then last, a really practical tip, I think, for our listeners with young children. Young children, she said specifically under the age of two, really need no screen time whatsoever. Uh, maybe FaceTime to see their grandparents in, a, in another town where they're at least connecting it with a human person. Um, but really, they do not need to be entertained uh, by electronic screens. And we thank you, our listeners, and are grateful for you being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share what we hope you'll think is the good news of Dr. Doctor. Share it with a friend and invite them to check us out on their favorite podcast app. You can also find us on drdoctor.org, our website, previous episodes all the way back to the beginning, I think. Uh, so be sure to check those out and be sure to tune in next week for your appointment right here with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.